You can see why I married him, right? <laughs> Um, we are now going to read from the Holy Bible. If you did not bring it with you, you can reach down and grab it from the seat in front of you, which is handy. It's the black one. And we're reading from page 1183, which is Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 24. So, ready? Paul wrote this when he was in prison, so it's pretty cool to see how... Yeah, anyway, let's go. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Well, uh, hello, everyone. Uh, uh, Listen, uh, let's have our Bibles open at uh, Colossians chapter 1. That's page 1183. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to get underway. Have a good time this morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness in uh, giving us life, as Gareth has already prayed, and then in giving us your scriptures as well. Help us to read them, to mark them, to learn them, to bring it to our heart's attention that we might change and become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose wonderful name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you can ever remember a time when you were engaged in a long project. It could be anything. Uh, it could be launching a new business or a new part of a business. Uh, it could be writing a book, making a film, uh, studying a degree... Uh, teaching a, a class, raising a child, whatever it is. How did you feel in the middle of it all? Did it ever feel like it was uh, not quite worth the effort? Or uh, did you ever wonder whether you'd even finished the project? In 1975, uh, Bruce Springsteen spent six months recording a single song. Six months! single song, Born to Run. I mean, it was the song that launched him to superstardom, I think it's been pretty good to him since then. But I wonder how he felt five months into recording one four-minute song. Raise your hand if you've ever seen the Disney classic Sleeping Beauty. You know it took eight years to make this film. Eight 
years. Before the animation could start, the entire film was filmed on a stage with real actors, so the animators would have uh, someone to, or something to model the characters on, and then they had to hand ink each frame, which could take up to a week, and Walt Disney himself felt like he needed to sign off uh, the work at the end of every single day, adjusting things until it was perfect. Eight years. But actually, it's another Disney animation called The Thief and the Cobbler, which takes the record for the longest amount of time to make a film. 28 years. Now, how do you maintain the rage for 28 years? And how many people have actually heard of The Thief and the Cobbler? <laughs> how crushing is that? 28 years and no one knows it. <laughs> In, uh, in terms of kind of engineering projects, there are lots of extraordinary things that humans have done. You think of Stonehenge or the pyramids or even things like the London Underground or uh, the Panama Canal. Uh, these days, of course, it's the Chinese who do the most impressive things. This is a picture of the Three Gorges Dam. It, it breaches China's Yangtze River. It's 600 feet high. It's 8,000 feet Long, it's 60 billion dollars and 17 years in the making. Now, whatever it is, six months to record the perfect rock song, eight years to make a Disney classic, 17 years to build a giant dam in the world's most populous nation, that requires endurance, stamina, follow through. And I am sure that in each of those cases, there were doubts about whether it was all worth it or even whether it would ever get finished. And I just wonder if you feel that way about the Christian life. Long-term venture, it requires struggle. Sometimes we wonder if it's all worth it. Well, that precise scenario confronts the Apostle Paul, and what we're going to see in Colossians today, which I really do hope you have open in front of you, is that his great struggle in the cause of the gospel for the sake of the Colossians and for us is entirely worth it. As Emily uh, said at the start, we're now in our third week in our series of this New Testament letter called Colossians. It's written by the Apostle Paul, that's Jesus' specially appointed spokesperson, to the Christians in a small town called Colossae in what is modern-day Turkey. And we've called our series, as you can see, Above All, because the book of Colossians testifies that Jesus is above all things. And for that reason, it's been a very positive book so far, talking about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But today, you would have picked up there is more than a hint of caution or wariness that just sort of tempers that positivity so far. You would have picked up on the accumulation of terms like suffering, afflictions, strenuously contending. So there's evidently some kind of a struggle going on for the Apostle Paul. Well, what is that struggle over? What is the end or the purpose of his struggle? And how does that help us? Well, they're the questions that we're looking at today. And so firstly, uh, we see that the great struggle over is something that is called the mystery. The struggle is over the mystery. But it's not um, self-evident what that means, is it? Well, what is this mystery? And why would the Apostle Paul struggle over it? Well, they're good questions to ask. So that brings us initially to the idea of the mystery, which is mentioned there in verses 26 and 27. So read along with me in your Bibles, please. 
where the Apostle Paul says, I have become its, that is the church's servant. I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, so you can see there twice in verse 26 and 27 the mention of mystery. It's the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages but is now disclosed. It is the mystery that is made known not just generally to the Lord's people, verse 26, but specifically among the Gentiles, verse 27. That's non-Jewish folks. Now, I don't know how you feel about this, but it seems to me that with new things being discovered all the time about the human body, about the world we live in, about the universe itself, it doesn't always seem like there are many mysteries left out there. But intrigue still bubbles to the surface from time to time. Now, if you live in and around Manly, especially if you're a swimmer or a surfer, you're naturally interested in sharks and shark sightings. Oh, the dusky whaler is back in the bay, that sort of thing. But uh, there's one that I guarantee you, you will not see. It's called the pink goblin shark. And it was thought to be prehistoric, extinct, pink, with a long pointed snout, hiding a rack of wicked teeth. And very few people, by which I mean less than 10 people in the world, claimed to have ever seen one of these. Um, so we didn't really know if they existed but a couple of years ago, some fishermen in the Gulf of Mexico pulled one of these bad boys up out of the ocean. It's not in the bay. Don't worry about it. They looked at it and thought, man, that looks prehistoric. Uh, it has got a long pointed snout. It has got wicked teeth. And they said to themselves, it is pink and it is a shark. We have a new winner. It is the pink goblin shark. The mysterious creature is revealed. Of course, they got so freaked out by the look of it, and I think probably the teeth, that after taking the photograph, they chucked it back in the ocean. It's a bit of a shame. Now, at one level, you think, well, that's cool, isn't it, that there are things swimming down in the depths of the ocean that we don't even know about, that God made just because he likes funky things. But the pink goblin shark shows us that that which was hidden for ages has now been revealed. The mystery has been disclosed. Now, the Apostle Paul, he's not talking about pink goblin sharks in Colossians, so what exactly is the mystery that he's talking about? Well, it's that the gospel, in all of its fullness, has been brought to light. Now, let me say, it was not a mystery that God might save his Old Testament people, the Israelites or Jewish folks. That wasn't a mystery. It wasn't even a mystery that somehow the Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish folks like most of us, might experience some of the blessings from God. But nobody expected that God's chosen method for bringing salvation to his own people was in the very person of his son. And it wasn't self-evident that at the very center of this salvation was not just a transaction. The penalty of sin was paid for, right? That's a transaction. But it's not just that. It's actually also relationship. Have a look in verse 27. It reminds us that the mystery is that Christ is with us or even in us, by His Spirit. And friends, it was mind-blowing that all this 
might be similarly available to Gentile people, that is, those not at the centre of God's promises of old, on the same basis as they're available to Jewish people, those who were at the very centre of God's promises of old. Mind-blowing that salvation and forgiveness and relationship with God is available to both groups, both Jews and Gentiles. In fact, all people on the same basis, which is through faith in Christ, God's only Son, who is above all. You see, that is the mystery that has come to the surface with the coming of Jesus and the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Hidden for ages, now disclosed. And you and I take it for granted, I think, those of us who are Christians, we take it for granted. We think it's old news. Friends, let me suggest to you that it is outstanding news. It is an entirely gracious offer that we had no entitlement to. Don't you think in our culture we love talking about rights? Always talking about rights. I've got a right to this, I've got a right to that. Love talking about rights. I'd like it if we talked as much about responsibilities as we talked about rights. But you know, when it comes to forgiveness of sins and relationship with God, we had no rights and no entitlements, especially for those of us without a Jewish background. But he has chosen to make this mystery known to us. By faith in him, Christ is now in us. One thing that uh, you would have picked up from the passage, and of course it's related, is that the mystery, which is the gospel, Christ in you, or perhaps even just Christ himself, is a treasure. Did you notice that? Verse 27 describes it. I mean, have a look. Uh, As the glorious riches of this mystery, the hope of glory. Chapter 2, verse 2. He talks about the full riches of understanding. In 2, verse 3, that in Christ all the treasures of wisdom can be found. You, You can't miss the effect of those words, can you? Treasure, full riches, glorious riches. Which means you can be very poor, and some of us are, And yet, you can be incredibly rich because knowing him is valuable wisdom if he lives within us and it supplies us with a glorious hope and a future. And of course, it also means you can be incredibly rich, and some of us are, and we can still lack the only riches that will prevail beyond the grave. When our money is passed to somebody else, probably an idiot, (laughs) probably, when our cars have rusted out, when our homes have fallen into disrepair. Of course, you can be poor in both senses, can't you? And you can be rich in both senses as well. I'm merely appealing to you to pursue and value the true and prevailing riches of knowing Christ. So that's the mystery. It's the gospel. It's the extremely valuable good news that centers on Jesus and who he is. And what he's done for us. It is that Christ is in us. And because that mystery is so important and because it's so valuable, the Apostle Paul struggles over it. He battles to proclaim it with great perseverance and with great energy. I mean, just check out some of the verses that are mentioned here. 
Have a look at verse 24 in your Bibles. I rejoice, he says, in what I'm suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what's still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Verse 29, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. I mean, you can very clearly see the effort that he devotes to this enterprise of proclaiming the mystery, Christ, uh, just in the language that he uses. It's the language of struggle. I mean, it's joyful struggle, but it is struggle nonetheless. I mean, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. What an odd way of putting it. How, Apostle Paul, can there be anything lacking in Christ's afflictions? Do you mean to say, like apart from what we looked at last week, which you, Apostle Paul, happened to write all those years ago about Jesus being supreme over all things and a sufficient saviour for all people, that his sacrificial death was not enough? That somehow you, Apostle Paul, and maybe us too, need to contribute to our own salvation? By somehow suffering as well? Of course not. Jesus' death is enough. His grace is sufficient. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. But it does mean that if the body of Christ, that is the Christian church all around the world, is going to continue to grow as it was growing in that day and as it grows in our day, more suffering will be required, more struggle will be involved, more strenuous contention from Christian people, and I guess especially Christian preachers, is going to be needed. Nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions when it comes to salvation, but if this glorious mystery about relationship with God through Christ is going to make it to all peoples across all time, each new generation from the Apostle Paul's onward is going to require struggle and suffering and strenuous contention. Now, there is some comfort in the fact that Jesus is not indifferent or removed from the struggles of his people, especially when that struggle is connected to the sake of his gospel and his church. You remember, Paul calls them Christ's afflictions because Jesus shares our pain and our struggle, but there is no escape from the fact that struggle is involved. So we might need to adjust our expectations. I had to look up um, this idea in verse 29 and 2 verse 1 of strenuously contending. I had to look it up. And uh, it's uh, the Greek word agonizomai. Agonizomai. What do you reckon that sounds like? It sounds like agonizing, doesn't it? And uh, at the very heart is the idea of a gymnast straining, you know, where you can see all the striations in their muscles, or of a wrestler contending, struggling with an opponent. Now, of course, it's Jesus who supplies all the energy, right? Verse 29. And the gospel is a great, valuable, glorious and wise mystery that centers on Jesus. But in Paul's day, and in fact, every day since, it's going to require human messengers in fact, human believers to struggle on its behalf, strenuously contending with all the energy that Christ supplies us. 
And so that is really the content of Paul's great struggle. It's the proclamation of this mystery, the gospel, that Christ is in you. My question is, what's the point of it, right? What's the end? What's the, the purpose of his struggle? And what we find out is actually it's for the spiritual maturity of the Colossians. In fact, it's for the spiritual maturity of other Christians of his day. In fact, it's for the spiritual maturity of Christians of every day, including today. The great struggle is for maturity. And you do see it throughout this passage. So check out verse 28 in your Bibles. He is the one we proclaim, uh, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Or in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Okay, let's zero in on verse 28. We see that Christ is the subject of Paul's proclamation and struggle. The content of that proclamation includes both teaching, which is positive, proactive, but also admonition or warning, which is the first hint that we have that maybe not everything is rosy there, that there might be a threat looming for the growing faith of the Colossians. So Christ is the subject. Teaching and admonition are kind of the method of the struggle. But the purpose, have a look at the purpose it's to present everyone fully mature in Christ. You there yet? Just go up a little bit further to verse 22, back in verse 22. The goal of Christ's work and Paul's preaching was to present people wholly in God's sight. That is, objectively, definitively saved, declared to be holy in the sight of God because Jesus took our sins and gifted us his righteousness. If you are a Christian, that is you now. Already happened at the moment of conversion or when faith was first placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. See, verse 22, the aim is to present people wholly in God's sight. Come down to verse 28. The aim is once again to present people, but in verse 28, mature in Christ. In other words, he does not just want us to be saved. He wants us to be mature disciples. And that happens in the months and in the years and in the decades that follow. And that means not only being encouraged in our hearts, being united in our love, nor even having full riches of understanding to know Christ in just an emotional sense, or an intellectual sense. It's to actually know him in your life so that your life starts to look like his life and so that you won't be persuaded by other philosophies or arguments or ways of viewing the world, ways of living your life that are contrary to living them for Jesus and with him. Now, friends, that is maturity, and I would suggest that all of us have got room to grow. Paul's great struggle is for the maturity of the Colossian Christians, uh, for the maturity of the Laodiceans, that's Christians from the next town along, uh, for the maturity of all those whom he hadn't met personally, which if you think about it, includes you and me. He wants us to mature in Christ. Now, 
when we come to work out what this passage means to us, I think we naturally go, be like the Apostle Paul, keep struggling, strenuously contending as Christians, for the sake of Christians, proclaiming the gospel. Now let me say, whatever effort you pour into that enterprise, however you serve with all the energy Christ supplies, that is not in vain. If in your particular ministry or act of service you feel like you're five months into recording the killer rock song, press on. And as I think about this, I actually see, you know who I see? I see you. I see people who serve relentlessly in kids' church. I see our admin team working away diligently to make ministry happen. I see small group leaders in their studies at home preparing for their group. I see disciples discipling younger disciples. I see others providing physical and spiritual nourishment at soup kitchen, at ESL, in all sorts of different ways. And I want to say, press on, my brothers and sisters, for you do a noble thing that will not be in vain. But when we look for application from this passage, the most obvious connection is not between us and the Apostle Paul. Right? He's a freak. Isn't he? Specially commissioned by Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles? Let's not get carried away with delusions of grandeur here. You know, like it's when you, um, you read the story of David and Goliath and you naturally go, be like David, that's who we're like. I'm like, man, we're nothing like David. You know who we're like? We're the scared Israelites hiding as far back as we can go. So let's not have um, delusions of grandeur. The most direct link in this passage is between us and the Colossian Christians. And so the application is not so much be like the Apostle Paul, specially commissioned Apostle to the Gentiles, it's actually to expect of ourselves what the Apostle Paul hoped for the Colossian Christians, that they might grow in their faith, that they might mature in Christ, that they might not be deceived by appealing worldly philosophies. And don't you feel that there is actually internal struggle to do that? It might not be getting persecuted by our family members and workmates, but we can just feel the internal kind of drain. Don't you think? I'm sure you would have felt that. It's not often in church you see a reason to quote uh, from Tyler Durden, who was the lean, provocative anti-hero played by Brad Pitt in Fight Club. Not often you quote from Fight Club in church film um, that really critiques modern generation and this is kind of the, the seminal kind of quote or speech from the film when he's looking at the group of men around him and he says these words he says I see all this potential and I see squandering damn it an entire generation pumping gas waiting tables slaves with white collars advertising has us chasing cars and clothes working jobs we hate so we can buy stuff we don't need we're the middle children of history man no purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised by television to believe that one day we'd be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't, and we're slowly learning that fact, and we're very, very angry. Uh, it's a really sharp critique of modern life. And he's bitingly saying that we've all been sucked into thinking that materialism and self-fulfillment will make us happy. And there's no greater cause. 
Now, I don't know what you think about the whole where the middle children of history man thing, but as believers, we do have a place, friends. It is with the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is within us. And we do have a purpose. It is Christian maturity. Oh, but we are in a war, a spiritual war, that's true. It's the battle not to be duped by either very kind of formal, um, structured sort of secular philosophies, perhaps like um, atheism. I'm sure that'll come up next week. But probably it's to be duped into just um, kind of running with the go-with-the-flow Australian culture. They would say, why would you struggle with being a Christian? Like even internally, why would you do that? You should relax. Chill out. Go with the flow. Enjoy yourself. Collect experiences as well as possessions and stuff you don't need. That's the war, friends, not to be duped by that. And so if it feels like a war internally or a battle from time to time, well, it should. And if it never feels like a struggle or a battle in your spirit, I'm really worried for you, my friend. and We ought to have a conversation. You know, um, that's actually one of the reasons why we go to church, you know, because we need encouragement to keep maturing in Christ. Uh, perhaps we need admonition to avoid being sucked in by fine-sounding worldly arguments. It's why we've got small groups, so we can keep maturing as disciples of Christ. I mean, I think if you want to mature in Christ, I recommend joining a small group. And let me say, if you've joined a small group, it, it's actually important for you to turn up. Uh, and I think you should make every effort you can to go to them, because I know we're tired and I know we're busy, but do you see us solving that problem? We're not going to solve that problem. It's just a tension we need to live in. If you don't turn up to church regularly, you're not in a small group, or you don't read the Bible one-to-one, what's your plan to mature in Christ? I'd be very keen to know. And uh, let's say you do turn up to church, small group, reading the Bible one-to-one, whatever it is. I think we've got to be discontent unless we're urging one another to grow in our faith and to mature in Christ, and to hold one another accountable to that, with generous spirits, of course. Because, friends, if all we're doing is discussing Christian ideas from a very old book, we're in an ancient book club. And let me put it nicely, that doesn't seem like a very profitable thing to do. And I could be much ruder than that. None of the Colossian Christians, none of the Laodicean Christians, none of us as Christians have maxed out our potential to grow and mature as Christians. All of us have got growth and maturing to do. We are in a long-term venture. It does require strenuous contention and strict attention and may at times feel like, man, it is not worth it. But since we're talking about the glorious riches of knowing Christ, since we're talking about the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found, since we're talking about the hope of a glorious future, since we're talking about the stupendous revealing of a mystery that Christ, who is above all things, now lives within us, don't you reckon that any effort or any energy devoted to our maturity or the maturity of others, is well-directed indeed? Yes, sir, it is. The Apostle Paul struggled over this gospel mystery. He struggled for the Colossians' maturity. 
and he didn't mind telling us about it either. And that's because that mystery and that maturity is worthy of our struggle too.